Hey, all you fish heads out there. My name is Smokin' Joe, and I have some questions. Do you have fish? Do you love your fish? Do you love your fish enough to buy them their own song? Who needs another castle for the tank when you can have a custom tune made for your favorite finned friend? It's easy. You tell me about your fish. I have the best fish. You pick a genre of music. Any genre. I make you a song. From metal to Irish folk. From EDM to funk to punk. I'd love to make a song for you. Visit www.smokinjoeonline.com to fill out your inquiry today. That's www.smokinjoeonline.com today. So I found out a couple days ago that I made a couple people mad on Yelp. And I just wanted to come here and I wanted to let you guys know that if I offended you in any way, I honestly, honestly don't give a f- so fuck you, fuck your mom. I don't mean to say things that are hurtful or offend people, but if I say something and you're offended by it, I just want you to let you know that you're fucking dumb. Take that for what it's worth. I had people that messaged me directly just to let me know that they're going to unfollow me. I just want them to know that. Bitch, I can't even read, so I don't even know what your message even says. So again, if I offended you in any way at all, do something. If you're, if you're bad. So if you do hate me in any way, I just want to let you guys know that I still got 15% off the entire store with promo code AquariumGuys at checkout. JoeStrimShack.com Not one fuck given. Hey guys, just one last thing before we start the podcast. Please submit your stories to the AquariumGuysPodcast.com email address. It's on the bottom of the website, AquariumGuysPodcast.com at gmail.com we need your stories for story time four we want to do it by user submission we're going to pick our favorites please send them in any format written video we need them let's kick that podcast Welcome to the Aquarium Guys Podcast with your hosts Jim Colby and Rob Zolson Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I uh, don't make fun of me, Jimmy. Um, it, it's, if anybody it's needs to get made fun of, it's you for eating all the McRibs. Oh, I love McRib sandwiches. They so, are wonderful. So now that we have a full review, uh, how many McRibs did you finally get through before you said, nope, not till next year? I, I got, I had McRibs three days in a row and then I had an upset tummy and then I had to quit. <laughs> I spent some time in the restroom. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, now that we got the off-topic stuff. There we go. We got that covered. That's great. (laughs) Today, we are uh, excited to have Joe Attawak, Joel Attawak. (laughs) See, I was so focused on his last name, I got his first name wrong. Go me. You suck. Joel, thanks so much for coming on. You got them both wrong, actually. I got what? (laughs) You got them both wrong. You got them both wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I think Joel should introduce himself. Joel Antkoviak. Joel Antkoviak. Thank you, Joel. So, Joel, uh, again, you have a, a very diverse background. You've been in the fish hobby a long time. We'll get into an interview. But you're here today to talk and give us more information on uh, killifish. So 
we are super excited to have you and and thank you for coming man taking the time out of out of your evening pleasure to be here so this week uh for news well, I was informed by my roommate because Jimmy and I have been very busy these last few days. Uh, apparently, you know, the last story we talked about Petco uh, and PetSmart, we were positive towards them. We were defending them from a guy that was suing them for emotional distress for killing his own fish. So this week we have to shit on them a little bit because they decided to change their traditional logo, which was a, like red letters, and then it had the the two uh, two animals, Ruff and Meow, or Mew, or whatever they Muse. call it. Muse. The cat's name, Muse. Right. And that was always their logo is the cat and dog on the Petco logo. So now they decided to reinvent the Petco brand. And all they did was remove the cat and dog and make it to a, like a dark, almost black Comic Sans font. It's horrible. It is horrible. I will say that. In fact, there's so much uh, distaste that they even had to put... On their Twitter page, that uh, Ruff and Muse are here to stay just to try to, like, rebuttal the negative feedback from the, the logo. Why don't they add a fish and a lizard and everything else and a bird? No, they should just put, like, a half-broken bag of dog food if they're going to show what they, they, they sell most. You know? <laughs> You're terrible. So, uh, certainly, check that out. Uh we always bring the scandalous topics to you here on the Aquarium Guys podcast. Uh, also, we got a review. Five stars says, hello. I go by Big Cab. I think that's what he calls his name. Says, I've found your show this week. I drive truck o- uh, over the road and have really enjoy the show. Makes day go by a lot better with the info and laughs. Keep it up. The chemistry that you all have to, with each other and guests makes really great show. P.S. Make sure Dr. Fish keeps coming. And we have been very, very blessed. Uh, Secrets Farms allows Dr. Fish to come on. We've had him on, what, four times now? Uh, yeah. And yeah. Still still going to have him keep coming. And every, People always have questions. People line up with their questions, and he answers them, and he gets about 98% of them. He is fantastic. Yeah, he even brought back uh, some questions that he can't answer during the podcast. Yeah, so. he does some research and comes back, but he has a tremendous... Uh, amount of uh, knowledge that he wants to share with everybody. So it's it's been really fun. It's basically trying to like stump the doctor at this point. We're having too much fun with it. So we'll keep them. We'll keep them coming for sure. So also we've been working hard. We are now in a new studio for uh, the podcast and I don't have the last cord is coming through Amazon to set up the camera. Otherwise we'll be on twitch.tv slash uh, forward slash aquarium guys. And you know, we put a lot of hard work and effort. We stole a table from your ex-wife. Yes. Drilled some holes in it. Yes, I'll return it. And now it. it looks kind of professional. It does. And I'm going to return it when we're done with it in a few years. Right. Whenever this podcast is over, we're just going to throw it in our lawn and put like a free sign on it. There we go. <laughs> Set it on fire. Start, yeah, it's, it is my ex-wife. Always trying to have a little fun. All right. So the we got a submitted question this week. Uh, it says on here, Dr. Fish or anyone else who has an answer. So this is from John. I bought two. Actually, I'm going to hold this up because I'm blind. I bought two koi angels that ended up pairing and spawning several times. I got them about two years ago. The female ended up dying unexpectedly. I added one more angel fish to the tank. It was smaller and jagged a fin on the top, which I thought could be fin rot or just damage from fin nipping. It came from a very crowded tank at the local fish store. Many others at the store look similar, so I didn't think much of it. Shortly after adding the fish... The male koi started to lose its color, 
uh, as if it was stressed, orange faded, uh, blue eyes turned white, and the tail and the top fins looked ripped with vertical white streaks that showed up. Ooh. I treated with Melifix for several weeks and nothing changed. I now realize this treatment is BS. <laughs> Melifix? I have. Well, if you leave the lights on, yes. <laughs> I have fed Melifix, or uh, excuse me. I have fed Metroplex mixed in bloodworms for several uh, for a week several times. I treated with salt, a uh, tablespoon and a half for seven days, one, uh, 100% water change in a homemade quarantine tank. The fish appears to eat and act normal like nothing's wrong. However, the fins have never uh, receded past where they were in the picture. I'm starting to think it's that it's not fin rot and maybe something else. The fish gets really red near the base of the fins, and sometimes worse than others. I have attached two pictures, seen any issues on this. So, Jimmy, I'm going to blow this up for you. Uh, I know that you love angels. So, I'm not seeing a ton of issues besides, like, it's clear here, and then you can see, like, the whiteness on the fins. And this one, you can see more pink. You want to send me one? Um, I think that's the natural coloration of the, of the uh, fish there, to be honest with you. But it's hard to tell. Usually, when I see... Something, uh, a matter, it's usually right in the snout. And the snout looks pretty clear, actually. I don't know. It's it's really hard to tell. I can try um, try to zoom in on some stuff. But I'm going to send it to Adam, and I'm also going to send it to our guest for assessment. Just give me one moment here. Uh, but otherwise, do you ever see, like, those uh, koi, almost like blonde koi angelfish get color change over time? I mean... Sure, when they get old, they fade, but that quickly it makes uh, makes a guy wonder for sure. I I don't see anything wrong with this koi. It, it's not a whole lot of anything for sure. There, I yeah. just I'm just now sending it to Joel. Maybe Joel uh, Joel has some uh, answers for some us. Insight. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with it. The second picture is definitely a little bit more pink, but nothing that like normally you'd think it'd be like a bacterial infection. Uh, the symptoms no, usually that'd be streaks. Yeah, you'd see streaks, and it'd be a lot more defined. It wouldn't just be like a blushing of pink. So the Melifix worked. Ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, Joel, how do you feel about Melifix? You like putting Vicks Vapor Rub on your fish? I've never used it. Adam's pretty... Uh, just try to keep my fish healthy. So. Well, that's a better plan. Yeah. Adam, Adam tries uh, uh believes that if you keep the substance away from light... That you'll have a better reaction, and they do put it in a like deep dark blue bottle where there no not a whole light can penetrate it. And uh, I mean, if you do take the light down on your tanker off, you are reducing stress in your uh, for your fish. So I don't know. There's something to be said about about that even without Melifix. I mean, the only thing I would say about this is it, it, when you bring in new fish, sometimes it does stress out your old fish, but you really need to quarantine before you put it in your tank. Um, especially if it was a crowded tank um, from your pet store. I mean, you get a lot of fin nipping. You get a lot of uh, bad edges on your on your, on your your fish and stuff. So if you've got them this far, I think you'll be just fine. I would just uh, keep an eye on them and stuff. I do not see anything really. Honestly, the best explanation I could have for this without, um, you know, missing information is it looks normal. Fish, after they've been breeding consistently for that long, can change color just because they're getting out of breeding cycle. Uh, breeding colorations are much different than when they're not breeding. 
And angelfish definitely do uh, change color with uh, water changes and mood. And they'll get stressed out too when you when you introduce somebody new to the aquarium. You know, a new person in town. So, there uh, people don't really realize that angelfish are are very territorial when it comes to uh, large sizes. So, as far as feedback and all that, that has kind of caught it up for uh, for this week, Jimmy. Uh, any other news for you? Nope. I was down in uh, uh, Plymouth, Minnesota last week. Stopped and saw our friend Joe at Joe's Shrimp Shack. Uh, what a wonderful, wonderful store. If you guys have not stopped there, you need to. Uh, he also ships a couple days a week. And he's saying the shipping is going very well, even in this cold temperature. So make sure that you uh, visit his site and uh, and purchase your shrimp there. He had very reasonable shrimp there. My wife and I came home with a couple of bags of shrimp of stuff that we didn't have yet and uh, came home with some fish food and uh, we sure had a great time. He also had, didn't he have something that uh, you didn't think that you'd ever see Jim? I never thought I'd see a $5,000 shrimp. And I saw, <laughs> I saw three of them. They exist. And I go, Hey, show, I said, I said, what's your most expensive shrimp here? He goes, these right here. I said, how much? He goes $5,000, but they're not for sale. They're just starting to breed. And I go, how do you sleep at night? He goes, very well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and these shrimp were in a small tank, and they were absolutely gorgeous. I'd never seen them before. I wish I would remember what kind they were. But if you're looking for some high-end shrimp, Joe has got everything from low-end. I shouldn't say low-end. they got everything from the average stuff all the way to the high-end. you, you got to give him a call, and he'll tell you the stuff that isn't listed on his website. That's right. Give him a holler. Was at the aquatic experience a couple of years ago, and there were several several thousand dollar shrimps on display there. Yeah, I the people that are into it are into it seriously. And uh, for myself to spend that kind of money on a shrimp, I would lose my mind, honestly. So I uh, work as a extremely part time rep for Cobalt Aquatics, right? And when anybody mentions uh, Joe in the office, they're like, "Joe, that sounds familiar." They're like, oh, yeah, that's that guy at Global Pet Expo that flew a drone into somebody's display. I'm like, oh, poor Joe. That is Joe. Poor Joe. Joe loves his drones. Uh, again, thanks again for uh, coming on the podcast, buddy. Uh, to kick the to kick the interview off, we always got to ask you, you know, where where did you get in this hobby from? What encouraged you to, uh, to participate and uh, um, what kept you in it? Um, well, as I, I said when we were talking pre-show that uh, my father was an insurance adjuster and had a fire at a pet shop, and he ended up coming home with a 20-gallon old metal frame tank. This was back in the early 70s, and that kind of got our whole family into fish, and I'm pretty much the only one that really stuck with it to read the old Innis book, Exotic Aquarium Fishes, which is what we used to refer to it as the Bible. And the color plates in the back got me really interested in. So I looked up the American Killifish Association. I saw an ad in uh, Old Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazine and ended up joining that back in 1976. And a few years later, I was in high school. My high school biology teacher is a member of the Greater Pittsburgh Aquarium Society, so I got into the Greater Pittsburgh Aquarium Society at that point. Wonderful. So I, I'm trying to think. An insurance guy that was addressing a house fire and he brought home an aquarium. Like, 
was he like with the fire department? Like, oh, quick, save that fish. <laughs> oh, it was a pet shop fire. Right. So uh, taking live animals out of a fire as an insurance broker, I got to say, your your dad must have been the best insurance broker of all time. <laughs> oh, he'd come home with some some interesting things sometimes, that's for sure. So what are some of the you know, expertise or uh, things that you've done uh, throughout your, your hobby of, of that are of note? Again, you came on tonight to talk about uh, killifishes, and you do go to uh, aquarium clubs uh, to speak, but... You know, what are some of your expertise underneath your belt? Um, as I said, I got into killifish early. Um, I was only 14 when I first joined the AKA. Um, I've also had a few years worth of breeding angelfish. Uh, I've always been into cichlids. Uh, I always, always love to watch the cichlids care for their eggs and fry. Always interesting. Oh, then getting into the, when I got into the, clubs you know talking to other people about the common interest was always a exciting thing to do now you also mentioned that uh, you were uh running a pet store or owned a pet store of your own as well i did own my own shop for a couple of years back in the early 90s and before that i worked in a couple of shops as well definitely a diverse experience to get started on the the topic at hand about uh killifish um most people uh, hear uh, killifish and uh, get really uh, intimidated about a lot, of, a lot of different names or that they uh, live uh, so long. So what are like your most intriguing favorite parts about uh, keeping killifish since you have clearly a long background in doing so? Well, I think one of the most interesting things is uh, annual killifish. They go into what's called a diapause phase when uh, they, the eggs go into a diapause phase or a resting phase. Um, so it allows them to survive a long period in basically dirt, you know, dried out pond bottom. Uh, all, almost all killifish eggs do have the ability to do that. It's just the non-annuals don't. So when you say annual, uh, it, it seems very much like, like a plant. Like there's perennials that live uh, for, you know, whatever lifespan they have. Annuals, literally, they're up for what, the, the, the one year, or the, the summer? How are their life cycles in the wild versus like these annuals in captivity? Yeah, depending on where they actually are found, um, some can only live for a few months in the wild. You know, the eggs hatch, the, rain, the rains come, the eggs hatch, the fry grow up. I mean, there are some species, uh, Nothobranchius furzeri, for example, that have been known to be sexually mature within two weeks and start laying eggs. Uh, with other species uh, live for a much shorter time, and dry season is a lot longer, and their eggs might might be uh, might take seven, eight, nine months to incubate. Then the rains come, then and those fish grow even faster. That long to incubate? That's that's, inc- them, that's yeah. incredible, and I just the thought that they're incubated because you always think of like uh, egg scatterers just leave them alone and they're you know like a chicken incubates the egg with heat, so it just takes natural environment or natural temperature swings to incubate this, or how does that work? Uh, yeah, it, depending on what temperature they're incubated at in your in the home fish room, um, you can you can change the incubation time for annuals from several months down to 
You know, there are some species that you can hatch in six to eight weeks. Uh, and if they're incubated at a warm enough temperature or they're incubated at a cooler temperature, they might take four to five months to incubate. I just, just the thought of incubation is just so foreign. Also having these uh, killifish, you, you said that they just dry out in riverbeds. So you always think of keeping fish, number one, there's live bearers. You always think of keeping fish eggs uh, either fully oxygenated or certain temperatures. And then you hear about like egg fungus. How in the world uh, do these eggs really make it through that? Do they just lay right before it dries to try to preserve the eggs or they're just naturally more resilient than other fish eggs? Well, uh, normally uh, the fish, that, the killies that live in rivers don't normally dry out, but uh, there's a lot of temporary ponds that form in rainforests when the rainy season comes. Those, those are where the annuals generally live. Um, and as soon as they're sexually mature, they just start laying eggs in the mud because they don't know how, how long the uh, wet season is going to last. They don't know how, uh, when the next rain is going to come or if the last rain was the last the last rain was the last rain. <laughs> so you said they lay them in the mud. Maybe that's the secret of trying to protect the eggs. So I'm assuming these fish, they, do they dig or just kind of rustle in loose mud? Yeah, um, depending on the species, you know, South American annuals tend to dive deep into the mud, whereas uh, African annuals species tend to just kind of plow into the mud a little bit, and the eggs only get buried under maybe a half inch, three quarters of an inch of mud. Then South America, you know, two, three, four inches deep, the eggs go. So after these eggs are, are uh, essentially laid, they dry. How long do most of these uh, breeds last? Like, I'm, I'm just thinking of this in a collection thing. Like, Jimmy always talks about uh, how fond he was of sea monkeys. Like, this is a real-life sea monkey moment. Like, I don't understand why people didn't, like, market this better because I still feel like killifish are very uh, a, a niche deal for most aquarists, and it shouldn't be. But how long do they – how long are they kept dry that they can still be used at a future date? Well, I've actually had some people that just a re most recent experience, somebody told me that they had just hatched some eggs um, that had been dry for like 14 or 15 months and they got some fry out of them. So they can be tough. I tried to hatch some eggs that I just found. I was cleaning up my fish room. They were about a year and a half old. Nothing hatched out of them, though. I didn't have the luck. <laughs> So it's it's about you have about a year expiration date at most, and even then you're probably not going to get a full hatch rate out of them. They tend to have varying uh, incubation times, uh, just because you know, when the dry season is over and the first rains come, that might not necessarily be the actual start of the rainy season. Some of the eggs will hatch out, but then the little puddle or or a temporary pool will dry out again, and fry are gone. But you still have some more eggs that are left in the mud that haven't uh, hatched out. So it's kind of a, a way of protecting the species into the future, having various incubation times. That's a way of th uh, thinking about it, because you always think of uh, fish scattering eggs. You know, you see a few hundred eggs and they're always trying to, you know, vary for survival rates. Never thought of incubation times as being another mechanic for survival rates. That's uh, that's fascinating. 
So how I'm just trying to wrap my head around this because again, I've, I've done killifish eggs, but I've never uh, harvested them my, on my own. I've hatched them and uh, went through their life cycle and that was it. I didn't, uh, you know, re harvest them and, and preserve them myself. So what is the best uh, method? Number one, to encourage killifish uh, to spawn in dirt. I'm, I see a lot of uh, forums that use peat. Is that still common? Oh, yeah, that's the most common way of doing it, um, using uh, just regular peat moss, or a lot of people use the Jiffy 7 peat pellets. That's what I've been using recently. Actually, a good method to do to, to make the peat pellets grow, um, somebody just shared on the AKA fish, uh, Facebook page, use instead of sterilizing, boiling the peat to sterilize it, they just boil water and pour boiling water over the peat pellet. So it kind of sterilizes it and then they grow all at the same time. And they, in my, my limited experience in doing it that way, peat pellets grow a heck of a lot faster than normal. You have a lot of peat moss available at a, in a much uh, quicker fashion. And when you talk about these peat pellets, um, those are the discs essentially that people put in water. They expand, and that's where you like start seeding out normal plants. It's those same peat pellets. Yes. Yes. And, and those are normally Absolutely. aquarium safe. I thought they had. Uh, yeah, you gotta watch. Go ahead, Joel. You got to watch. Some of them have fertilizer in them, so you got to watch. Make sure you get the ones that don't have fertilizer. So. You ever get the, them to spawn? I'm assuming you have to have the peat loose for them to spawn in uh, in the tank, or do you rip them, or just just put it in there and they'll find a way in the bag? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll break up the pellets and collect the peat into. I usually use little ivy bowls that you can get for like a bucket at Michaels or other craft stores. Um, those are good for for most of your African annual fish that this the plowers and then i'll use like lantern lantern glass so they're a little bit taller and they still have the rounded edges for the diver so i'll put a lot more peat moss in there they can dive in and it helps the rounded sides help to contain the peat in the in the container so it doesn't go flying all over the tank so after they go in do you watch do you witness them spawning and will they continue to spawn, or do they spawn one time and then and then that's it? Killifish, um, there's a couple of ways you can go about it. Um, normally, killifish will lay a few eggs every day for an extended period, which is the main reason that you don't see them in pet shops most of the time, because uh, they're very hard to mass produce because they lay a few eggs a day as opposed to cichlids that will lay you know, several hundreds or a thousand eggs all at one time. But, um, yeah, they'll, they'll lay their eggs over a period of time. Normally with the annuals, you're going to collect the peat moss, um, usually a week to week or so, a week, a week at a time. And then the eggs will pretty much, um, most of the time they'll incubate and they'll hatch at the same time. You get a uniform hatch. Do you let them dry out first or do you just go ahead and, and take that dish and put it in a different aquarium and let them hatch? Yeah, absolutely. Let them dry out. Um, the eggs are tough. You can squeeze out the excess water from the peat moss. You know, I, I'll take the ivy bowl of the peat moss through a fine mesh net, squeeze it out. 
then I'll break it up and let it air dry for a few hours before I store it in a plastic bag. And on the bag, you know, you note the uh, name of the fish that you have the eggs from and the date that they were collected and date you expect to hatch those eggs. Can they take freezing at that time? Do you, or So when you're shipping eggs in the winter, do you have to put a heat pack with them or no? Um, it's probably a good idea to use a heat pack depending on what part of the winter you're shipping in. Um, it's actually just better just not to ship it all during the winter. These okay. are tropical fish and the eggs, the eggs pretty much need warmer temperatures. Good to know. So how long do you have from laying before they hatch on their own or, or will they even, or they require being dried? Oh, the a- annuals will require a, a dry period. Non-annual fish, you, know, you just keep them, incubate them in water and they'll hatch in 10 to 14, 17 days, depending on what the temperature is. The annuals, you know, like I said, you can vary the incubation time from a few weeks up to a few months for some species, and then you can get them all to hatch at once. What do you keep the eggs in for, like, maximum uh, um, life expectancy or, or, or best care? Is it some sort of, like, Ziploc baggie, or is there, there instructions to pack them? I just use a regular fish bag, and I'll pack it with... Um, with an air pocket like you would if you're bagging fish. And then I just you know, store them in a, a warm area. I usually just keep all of mine in a styrofoam fish box and check it every couple of weeks to see what eggs are due to be hatched and go from there. How do you check eggs due to be hatched? Do they turn a color? Are they just dry enough? Um, well, with uh, annuals, it's tough. You got to find the eggs first. I usually just uh, take it on faith that there are eggs in the bag. I try to check, make sure there are some before I seal the bag up. You know, when I first collect the peat, you can see the clear eggs then. Um, Once they start developing, it's a lot harder to find them in the peat. But if you can find the eggs, uh, you look for the uh, iris on the eye of the embryo. If it's like a golden iris, you can, it's usually time for the eggs to hatch. put them in some water and uh, hopefully they'll hatch out in a few hours. Now, now when you put the the peat moss and the eggs in the bag, is the peat moss still a little bit moist? A little bit moist, about the consistency of pipe tobacco. So it's sometimes a little bit drier. So you squeeze squeeze the the, uh, moisture out of there pretty much and then let it air dry for a couple hours and then you put it in the bag and seal up the bag and put it in the box. Some people actually use an incubator and, and set it at certain temperatures. So I don't have an incubator, so I use the styrofoam fish box as my incubator. And what type of success rate do you have? You know, if you have 100 eggs, do you get get 50%? Do you get get half or do you get more? Um, well, I don't – typically with the, the non-annuals, you can count the eggs a lot easier because you're picking them out of a, a mop and putting them in water so you can actually see the eggs. But when you have peat, yeah, if you're, if you're able to count a hundred eggs, you probably have a lot more than that in there. And I would, in my experience, I, I've gotten about maybe a 30 to 40% success rate. That's incredible. So when these fish uh, eggs are in, in the peat moss in the bag, do you have to worry about fungus? I mean, I know like with angelfish eggs and, you know, you get one that funguses and it spreads all over the place 
you really don't have to worry about fungus, do you? A dry environment, maybe uh, you wouldn't have to? Uh, I, th- I think the acidity of the peat moss keeps the fungus from spreading if there are some bad eggs in the bag. That's incredible. So that, that makes things a little bit easier. Um, you know, I've had some thousand egg spawns that were great and didn't put enough methane blue in there and a few eggs just destroyed the whole batch. Whereas the previous, uh, you know, from the same pair, the previously I'd gotten, you know, a 90% hatch rate. So that is kind of interesting that the peat moss does that for that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure if, if it is actually the peat moss or not, but I mean, I never see like uh, a bunch of eggs fungus together in, inside the peat moss bag. So, and then I've, I've had that experience that you've had with angelfish with the whole the whole batch going bad from a couple of eggs that that the fungus wasn't contained to. Yeah. So how do you categorize uh, killifish that are not annual? Because we heard of annual killies. What do we call the other killifish? I call them non-annuals. They live, you know, the annual killifish can, will live, you know, a few months up to maybe eight or nine months in the wild. But the non-annuals live in, in more permanent bodies of water. Um, ponds and streams and you know they'll live several years any behavior uh in the tank uh differences between annuals and non-annuals that are uh, starsely different um i don't know about behavior i think the most of the annual fishes are have a stockier body so they can plow into the soil and most of the non-annuals are more streamlined. I mean, there are some stocky bodied non-annuals, the pup fishes and such, but for the most part, most of them are more streamlined bodies and they can cut through moving water a lot faster. I've also heard a rumor that a lot of annuals can be more aggressive than non-annuals. Is that true? Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen where, you know, one male Notho will take up shop above the ivy bowl and kind of protect that territory from any other males in the tank. Oh, if I, if I have a large enough group, I'll put two or three ivy bowls in the tank, the peat moss in it so that each male can have its own territory around the ivy bowl. And you say ivy bowl, how big are these bowls? that you keep them in. I mean, when you're doing an annual, I always try to like treat it like a uh, different other fish, but I'm assuming the environments that these killifish are, they can handle a lot of uh, size variation and environment. What do you recommend keeping annuals in? Um, well, it depends on how many fish I have. If I just have one pair or trio, I'll use a five gallon tank for most species. Some of the larger ones, you can use a 10, 15, 20 gallon tank, but, but you know, most of your smaller nothos, you can keep safely in a five-gallon tank. Some people even breed them in two-gallon tanks. I, I like to give them a little bit more space, give some space for the female to run around if she needs to uh, get a break from the male. Uh, larger, there are some larger ones like the Paralebius and Athalebius species of South America get four, five, six inches. You know, you're going to need to put them in a bigger tank. Did you just say four, five to six inches? Is that an annual species? Yeah. So it was, uh, Moema, there was a species, Moema Key, a couple of years ago at the uh, AKA convention. There was uh, somebody brought in a male that was about eight or nine inches long. 
didn't have a female for it, so he was trying to get it so get it matched <laughs> up with somebody. <laughs> How in the world does that work? That must be incredible growth rate. Like you hatch one of those species out, and what three days it's uh, already enrolled through high school and uh, <laughs> drinking its first beer. <laughs> No, some of the species will grow very fast. Um, like I said, there's Nothobranchius furzeri have been known to spawn within two weeks. Um, I've bred uh, Calopanchax occidentalis, the golden pheasant killie, and they're sex bull and laying eggs in four weeks. If you if you feed them enough, you feed them three or four times a day, and you do water changes, you can get get them to grow really fast and start spawning very soon. So one of my favorite things to do that I'd love to do is I love to go to the, the different conventions and stuff. Um, how many different species would I be able to see at, at your convention? How many, how many you normally have there on display? At the AKA convention, there's usually a good, I would say probably about 200 species. Some of most of them in the show and the uh, AKA also has, what they call the new and rare species committee where they bring in new or rare fish, usually from breeders in Europe. They usually have about 30 or 40 different species on display that are available in the auction from the new and rare species committee. And then about 150 different uh, species on display in the show itself. So as a beginner and, and I would go to a convention, what would be, a good starter fish for me to try and at what price range would I enter into that? There are a lot of good starter killifish. Um, best ones, probably the, the old golden wonder killie that you can find in Petco and PetSmart and other, your know, mom and pop shops. Um, Funny old Panchak's Gardner Eye or Gardner's killie. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, locations of that one around that are, those are very easy to keep and breed. I've had these males now like a year and a half, and I've, I, I don't know if they're supposed to be an annual or if they are uh, long-term. Gardner but... The Gardner Eye? Yes. Yeah, Gardner Eyes are, are, are non-annual. So, yeah, they only live up to three years or so. And the most popular killifish is probably the uh, liar tail killie, the, the orange version of it. Orange liartail killie, uh, Aphiosemia in Australia. Those things are very popular. Um, go even though they're very common and easy to breed. If you have nice pairs of them, in a, even in a, a regular aquarium society auction, they'll go for thirty or forty bucks for a pair. Yes, they're very very beautiful. We've got them pulled up right now on the on the Google. Thing and they're not far <laughs> off pattern from the garden eye that uh, that I have, but they definitely have more robust tails and, and side fins. It's very, very beautiful. The liar tails, too. A lot better extensions on the tail. Oh, nice, beautiful, and they're like white tips. It's gorgeous. So what's the rarest of the killifish that you've seen? Like, is there some that somebody snuck out of Africa, you know, and... Or any or a South America, you know, in the dirt in their shoe, and then they just kind of <laughs> smush some eggs there. I've heard stories, but I wanted to confirm with you that that may or may not happen. I've heard stories. I don't have firsthand knowledge of it happening, but like I said, I've heard the stories too. Um, and there are some fish that I've never seen. I mean, there are there are several hundred species of killifish, so there there are there are. Some species I've never seen that I'd like to get, um, but probably probably the hardest 
to come by um, fish that is in the hobby is probably the saber fin killie, Terranatos delicopteris. Things go for a fortune every time at the AKA convention. And when I say fortune, I'm talking hundreds of dollars, not, you know, not 50, 60 bucks. And it's a small fish, too, about an inch and a half. You call it a, a sailor cool fin, Killy? Saber. Saber fin. They kind of look like angelfish, but the, the body is small and, and more elongated, if you, if you want to try to picture it. Very cool. Now, when something that comes for sale, do they sell them as trios or as pairs? Usually you're going to see pairs for sale on like Aquabid. Um, usually in the AKA convention, they have to be shown in pairs and they're usually uh, put in the auction in pairs. Um, there's also you know, so, some shows around the country where they have box sales. So that's up to the breeder how, how they want to sell them. If they have an excess of females, they'll sell trios. If they have excess of males, they'll sell reverse trios. It's not one of those scenarios where you'd have like, uh, you want to have less males just for the sake of harassment, like, like say, guppies. Yeah, usually you want to have maybe, if you want to group spawn them, two or three males to four, five, six females, um, especially with annual fish. That's that's the way I'd like to do it the, the best. If I can get a hold of, of multiple pairs or trios of the fish, that's the way I'd do it. It's hard hard to come by you know, more than one or two pairs of a fish and getting extra females is tough too. So when you hatch these, is it any different for the fry on how you feed them? Is it very much brine shrimp related or is there some secret sauce uh, food that you would use just for killifish? I've always used newly hatched baby brine shrimp. It's always, I've found that to be the best. Um, some some of the fish, such as the clown killie, the fry are extremely small and might need infusoria. But with a fish like that, that's a fish that's not too aggressive. And if you have them in a tank that has a lot of plants in it, um, fry will a lot of the fry will survive in the tank and take cover amongst the plants. Where they get enough food, uh, you know, microscopic foods before they uh, can eat baby brine shrimp. So essentially, if you're doing that, you want yourself an established tank. Now you want to go up for at least a couple of weeks, few weeks. That way you have microbacteria for the fish to somehow find uh, food on. Yeah, some infusoria and other microscopic organisms. Um, find live plants are teeming with microscopic organisms. So, you know, uh, that's, that's a great environment for something like the clown killie which is actually a very uh, popular and pretty common species you can find. Also sometimes called a rocket killie. I know you're going to kill me for this, but I need to be honest with you, Joel, right? As a uh, killie advisor, uh, I've done killie fish in the past. I have, again, those species I told you about on head right now. I do enjoy them. Um, definitely not an expert by any means, but there, there's definitely so many varieties, and I, I've failed myself to really get deep into annual Achilles, and I've made it a goal to get into them because I have actually friends local that want to do them with me. And what I what I told them, and again, he's uh, part of the AKA Achilles expert. Um, I told them that what I want to do, and this is might be a terrible idea that will anger some of my listeners. But you remember that time when you were a kid in the bathtub and your mom gave you those little um, 
what is it, pellets, and you put them in the tub and they grow into a toy, like a sponge toy or something else, and they dissolve in the tub. Essentially, what I want to do, I want to get a bunch of assorted annual killi eggs in an established tank and uh, essentially put a few eggs in and see what in the world I get and have it be like my competition on trying to identify the species of killies that I'm able to hatch. So that's what he's doing for uh, my Christmas present. He's uh, getting a assortment of hardy annuals for me together and uh, hatching them together to see what I can I can find and relive my childhood. Now, what's the risks in doing that, and why some uh, should someone do it or do not do it? Oh, depending on what types of annuals you're dealing with. If you're talking about doing nothobranchius, good luck identifying the females. Males you should be able to identify, but the females are almost all identical. There are a few that have a couple of black spots here and there, but for the most part, almost all your nothobranchius females look the same. As just the same as the males or as the same as other killifish? No, the, the, the same as the other species of nothos. The, the males, there's, there's great sexual dimorphism as far as color is concerned with killifish. Females are generally drab, gray-brown. Uh, some of them will have a few spots here and there. But uh, with, with uh, the males, the males are strikingly colored, and, and they display these colors on their fins and their bodies when they're trying to attract the females to drive them into the dirt. But uh, for male nothos, a lot of them look significantly different that so you'll be able to identify the males. But the females, they all look alike. A male Nothobranchius recovi looks the same as a male, uh, a female Nothobranchius recovi looks the same as a female Nothobranchius palmquisti, and same as a female Nothobranchius guntheri, and so on. Will they crossbreed? Hey, some of them will, yeah, or they'll try anyway. Okay. Is it one of the scenarios like you get a mule and they can't breed after the fact, or? Um. Yeah, I think I think most of the time that is the case. If you are lucky enough to get fry from the, the hybridization, chances are the, the next generation is going to be non-existent. Do they ever crossbreed to try to make like new patterns and, and colors? Or is that just too risky and people want to keep them pure because there's just enough, there's plenty enough diversity in killifish? Some people will try to breed to different uh, color uh, collecting locations. And when you get a pair of killifish, a lot of times it'll have a collection location associated with the name uh, and we do that because a lot of times in the future as the fish is studied further it might turn out to be a different species altogether so then you'll know that you know your nothobranchius guntheri from one location is actually you know a nothobranchius uh, guess we didn't know that's what it was then you know <laughs> one of those deals um uh, it, it's, it's always best to keep the different locations and different color varieties separate. Now, we talked to you earlier off the air. The uh, You guys are from the Pittsburgh area. Your group is. How many different species have you guys bred as a group? Have you have you bred everything you get your hands on? Or are you stick with a, a few, you know, basic 50? Well I, well, I used to be in the Pittsburgh area. I haven't been there in a, in a while. But I do still stay in contact with that group and... I do know that there's a lot of good breeders out there that do breed killifish. Um, and one of the 
country's best breeders is Eric Bodrock, and he's he's bred a bunch of different killifish, but he pretty much specializes in catfish. Um, in my club, there's a couple of guys that will breed killifish. Um, there's not a whole lot available in our area, so generally you either have to buy from a, uh, an online source like the Wet Spot or Aquabid, or go to the convention or, or a killifish show to be able to get different species. So how often does does the group meet and, and what goes on during a meeting? A lot of people, you know, have heard about these groups. They don't really know what happens, what goes on. And, uh, I mean, we've been involved with different groups and the continued education that you get and stuff. But but what do you guys do? Do you get together and, and, uh, and try to source different killies for each other or do buying and trading or? What's a typical meeting like? Well, it depends on the club. Uh, my local killifish club is basically it's a, it's a it's a social organization. We don't really have programs. Might have one every two years. You know, have somebody come in and give a program, or or you know uh, have somebody uh, share a program, a video program that they found on YouTube or something. But for the most part, my local killifish club is a social group, and we uh, we will breed and trade fish with each other. And with our annual picnic in the summertime, we usually try to find some breeders to just the club will buy fish from and put them in our auction in the summer picnic. So we get some new species in the area. Now, my local general club, um, we we get. Saturday afternoons and generally we'll in normal times we'll get people coming from a long distance. So we get a lot of a variation in what's available in our general clubs auction. I'm just imagining that after the presentation, like the diehard killifish fans all go in the back corner. They all take a uh, fish bag with some eggs. They put it in the, in the middle of the table and they all play a poker round where winner takes all. Winner takes all. <laughs> Ante up, baby. <laughs> Ante up. Like I'm gonna raise you a couple of uh, these gardener killings right there. <laughs> well, that's what you. That's what you hope that somebody that can't play poker puts up his his saber killings eggs. <laughs> Get some of them saber fish up there. Go go high dollar. Come on now. We're we're just giving you ideas, Joel. You know, uh, I'm just saying, if you don't do I it like now, you should get on that. That would be a good poker match. Something post-COVID. I just don't know of anybody in the United States that has a saberfin killie. <laughs> it's that rare. Crazy. It's very rare. Some Are people just- have had it. It was, it was available at the AKA convention a few years ago. And I don't know if the people that ended up with them, the people with the money, uh, had any success breeding them. And of course, we didn't have the convention this past year, so I don't know what's out there at the moment. Yeah, are these regulated by any uh, governing body, like CITES or anything? So, like, you can't bring them from Europe, or it'll depend on the species. There are some species that are are limited in trade. Um, a lot, a lot of the ones that are limited, well, you'll find on the Cares Preservation Society priority list. Uh, you can look that up on uh, caresforfish.org website. It's a an organization that works towards trying to keep 
fish that are in the hobby established in the hobby and 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 to keep them um, established in the wild as well there there are some species that are on the list that you, not legal to to even keep uh, a lot of especially uh, native killifish such as uh, Crinichthys bailei, a couple of subspecies of that are on the list, and you're not allowed to keep them without having a permit, federal permit. I, I think I there's, didn't. there's also local laws in some states that because just they're native that prevent uh, some of it as well. So certainly not only check those lists, but check your local area to see about uh, native species. Like in Minnesota, not killifish-related, um, we, we just heard on one of our podcasts what we have to go through to keep sunfish. So uh, you know, make sure to check where they're, they're sourced because a lot of killifish come from North America. Yes, there are. Uh, mostly the fungular species and so a lot of the puff fishes, the cyprinidon species. Um, some of them are very nice-looking fish, especially if you go collecting down in Florida. Your fungular cingulatus has some nice red-orange fins on it. Um, things like Adinia zenica has got like a diamond-shaped body and a lot, lots of uh, iridescent flecks on the sides. It's very attractive fish. Of course, the uh, American flagfish, Jordanella floridae. That one, of course, is available in shops most of the time. But, um, yeah, there are actually a lot of good-looking native killifish as well as the South American and African. Adam, you had a question? Is the least killifish, con- the live-bearing killifish, is that really considered a killifish? I think it's hetero... I forgot the whole name. Heterandria formosa. Yeah, it's it depends on who you who you talk to. Some some of the scientists lump the uh, live bears, the pixiliad live bears, in with the killifish group. Um, there's there is definitely some overlap, but um, I personally don't consider it a killifish, and most of your breeders award programs don't consider it a killifish. They consider it a live bear, but um, but there is some overlap, especially with the Gudeans. Um, there are some fish that are found in the desert southwest that are very rare um, in the, the group Empetrixis. Um You're not going to find any of them in, in the hobby. They're not in the hobby, but they, they look like Gudeids. They're egg layers, so they're some Gudeid people lump them in with the Gudeids. Some killifish people put them in with the killifish. So it's like an overlap group. There are, there are a couple of those types of groups that connect killifish to other groups of fishes. Interesting. So if you have those ones from southwestern, the southwestern U.S., uh, is that a bad thing? Adam, what do you oh, have? As far as I'm concerned, if you're doing well with it, no. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I just realized even killifish know the uh, feeder guppy memes. <laughs> true. Adam is is a guy in our podcast and always got something that he probably shouldn't have. Yeah, and most of the time it itches. Or he knows a guy that has something that he probably shouldn't have. <laughs> which is actually him. We'll get it out of me. We'll get his name out of me. There we go. <laughs> All right. But yeah, so- speaking of feeder guppies, there are some killifish that would love to have feeder guppies gonna get big enough to swallow them. Yeah, Adam has this infatuation with endler guppies, and we keep telling him they're feeder guppies. And we actually had some merchandise I'm wearing in the shirt tonight, and it says uh, endler, and it's kind of crossed out. It says feeder guppies. But Adam Adam takes offense to that, but we don't care. I do. It's for his I benefit. Just, 
So uh, that's, how, that's how little boys get interested in the hobby. You know, they get a Jack Dempsey and then they get a bag of little guppies and they put them together and they're like, oh, watch them disappear. Boom. <laughs> Sounds like my first marriage. <laughs> she was a Jack Dempsey. <laughs> And watch the bank account disappear. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, we, you mentioned before some species for beginners to try out. And, again, most of the uh, – we get a lot of questions on how I should try feeder, uh, feeder guppies, <laughs> how I should try killifish. And you mentioned a couple different species, but they were uh, non-annual. So if someone was going to go out and try and they really wanted to try this annual and they wanted to start essentially doing their yearly cycle and trying to breed them and keep them and keep a lineage going – what would you recommend for a really hardy, go-to, easy-to-brood species? Uh, well, from Africa, Nothobranchius gunthrii is the easiest of the of the African annuals to keep and breed. Um, a lot of killifish, it's it's tough to get them to take prepared food. If you can get them to take frozen food, you're good. But um, with the gunthrii, I have I have no trouble getting them to take. Uh, pellets and flakes and stuff uh so they're the easiest ones they lay eggs the eggs hatch in eight to ten weeks uh depending on the temperature maybe a little bit longer depending on the temperature fry are very easy to raise from south america the new world annual groups um probably the easiest one would be nematolibius ploidae it's killifish it's a very easy. In fact, that was actually the first fish that I bred for BAP points when I joined the Pittsburgh Club years ago. Annual killifish. <laughs> How many species of killies do you have in bags right now? In bags? Um, I don't know, seven or eight. In tanks? A lot more. <laughs> now, Joel, do your buddies call you up and go, hey, I need a dime bag? Does that happen? <laughs> Give me ten dollars worth of fish eggs. You ever worry about the police showing up at your house? Our BAP program in the the Lancaster Club is a little different in that we try to make allowances for people that just like to keep one type of fish. So, you know, you complete most uh, BAP programs will have, uh, you know, you have a category for killifish, and once you complete it, that's it. You just get points when you breed more killifish. But we have you know, the beginner's level in killifish, and then we have an advanced level, then we have a master's level, and then we have an expert level. And basically, you you just got to keep spawning more killifish and harder killifish to advance to the other levels. So, you know, if you're only interested in, say, cichlids, we got African cichlids, we got New World cichlids, and you can, you can, you know, get eight awards for just doing cichlids as opposed to two awards that you might get in another club's BAP program. You know, and, and to get the younger people interested in it and you have a kind of a reward system there, that's what all this should be about. I mean, everybody needs to invite a young person to one of these shows, get their interest up. And uh, we need to share all the information we can with, with the younger generation, because all of us old guys are getting old and, uh, It'd be nice to see somebody step up and, and really take the bull by the horns. Well, see, you're making it sound like Grandpa's going to invite you to the lodge, and you're going to go all get nude in the sweat lounge. It's a lot more fun than that, Jimmy. Come on what now. What shit did you do with your Grandpa? Jeepers, John. <laughs> I miss you, Grandpa. 
Yeah, okay. You need to close the door when you run the microwave. I've told you that a hundred times. But it keeps going in circles, Jimmy. <laughs> That's right. Well, Joel, um, just to go over the, like, the, the other uh, details, most killifish, what's the pH ranges? Or are they all specific? Yeah, it's kind of a misnomer. Most people say, oh, killifish need soft acid water, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, most of your aphiosemians will take soft acid water. A lot of your epiplatus will take them, but some of the epiplatus will take harder, slightly alkaline water. And there are even, there's even a species of killifish that lives in Lake Tanganyika, so you want a high pH and hard water for it. Tang- Tanganyikan killifish, the Prickthes tanganicanus. Um, the pupfish from southwest U.S., um, harder, more alkaline water. Um, the, even the uh, fungulus species and, and the flagfish that are found around Florida and on the east coast, um, a little bit harder, more alkaline water. Uh, you know, South American annuals, typically softer, more acidic water. Depends on where they're found. And as far as uh, other diet... Again, uh, killifish, again, if you can feed live, uh, do it. Uh, it requires brine shrimp uh, for, for uh, small sizes, of course. But is there any um, other – I've even pe- heard people use like the – what is it? The uh, Hikari first bites. Will they go for that kind of pow- powdered subs, uh, substance if you don't have – or had a bad batch of brine shrimp? Um, some people have success doing it that way. I generally don't. What I, I, like I said, I try to do, uh, baby brine shrimp. Some people culture micro worms or Walter worms. Um, the fry will take those too. Um, after a couple of weeks, what I try to do is I'll take the prepared foods, either some finely crushed flakes or the, the first bites from Hikari or other fine food. I'll put that on the surface of the water. And then I will squirt some brine shrimp through that. So it kind of gets mixed in with the brine shrimp and they take it by accident sometimes. And then they, they, they learn that oh, once that hits the water on top and the brine shrimp are coming through and they go right up to the top and start eating it. So they, that's the way I, I transition them into flake food and dry foods. That's actually a great idea. You made Adam's night. Yeah, it's a new it's a new way of thinking about it that I never would have thought of to try to get some trick something that only eats live or even frozen food and try to trick it into eating uh, prepared foods. That's actually a great one. Thank you. Yeah, I've been doing that for years. Now, is there any particular disease do you have to worry about uh, with killifish? I mean, are they more acceptable to to ick or or anything like that, or or do they normally uh, stay pretty much solid? Most of them are pretty hardy. The nothobranchias tend to um, be susceptible to velvet. So typically you keep a, maybe a teaspoon per gallon, tablespoon per five gallons, somewhere in that range of salt in the water to keep them from coming down with velvet. But for the most part, most of the killifish are pretty hardy. I've also heard about a behavior-altering fluke. I'm assuming this is never seen in captivity. It's essentially uh, that uh, I really can't pronounce the name, but I, you hear about this uh, parasite that pops off of snails. The birds eat, the birds drop into the water, and they hit killies, and it's, it's some weird cycle that 
uh, involves snails, killifish, and some uh, shorebirds. I'm assuming we, we don't see those type of parasite issues in captivity when they're sold, especially because they're annuals. But do the non-annuals, do you see ever hear like some unique parasites happen within in the trade? Well, actually, that's one of the advantages of keeping killifish is because you're typically going to get them, uh, most of them in egg form, whether they're annual or non-annual. You can ship non-annual eggs too because they take a long time to, to incubate, you know, 10 to 14 days or even longer. So, you know, typically you're going to have parasite-free fish to begin with because you're starting with the eggs. I have not seen that in, in my experience. So any other specialty uh, thing that we need to know about uh, killifish as far as, uh, you know, care or any trade secrets you'd like to share with the class? Well, there's a, a lot of different things that you can do. Um, like I said, you can do the permanent setup with a planted tank for the clown killies and, and a lot of other killifish will you know, have success with them. One of the things that I've had a lot of success with is with some of the smaller fungulopanchex, the gardener eyes, boring burg eye, uh, fungulopanchex oceri. Um, people don't think of using undergravel filters anymore. But they work great when you're trying to breed those fish. You put put the get a five pair in a five gallon tank with an inch or so of gravel. I plant it up with some uh, water sprite, and you lay their eggs in the gravel. And the flow of water through the gravel keeps the eggs oxygenated and they develop very quickly. And then they get the fry gets sucked under the ground, the gravel filter plate, and, and they get thrown out right into the top layer where the uh, water sprite is floating around. So it's right where it's rich in infusoria, so they can start eating right away. And then when I have tanks like that set up for breeding, I will shoot some. Uh, baby brown shrimp into the tank every every day after the tank has been set up for a couple of weeks. After two or th two to three weeks, you're going to start seeing fry just appear in the in the top. I mean, I've ha I've had success to the point where I would pull a hundred fry out of the water sprite at the top of the tank if I wanted to. One of the times when I wanted to save as many fish as I I wanted. Lots of success with the the gravel the gravel spawning type fish using undergravel filters. Yeah, it's even getting hard to find undergravel filters. I mean, you don't see them a lot, like in pet stores anymore. No, you don't. So I usually get them at auctions, and if I see them and people are like, eh, "Undergravel filters, what do you use that for?" I'm like, "I know what I'm using it for <laughs> uh, anything from ten gallon on size on down. Well, you know, ten gallon and smaller." It was even hard to find undergravel filters for small tanks when they were common. So anytime I see them, I scoop them up. Consider the box checked. Be like, yes, I'll take all of your, your old broken undergravel tubes. <laughs> uh, I had a friend uh, in, in Tennessee, or excuse me, not Tennessee, West Virginia, and uh, he got... It was a closed down pet or closing down pet store. They were open for like 60 years and he got these weird 15 gallon talls and he's like, I don't know what to do with them. I was like, Oh, they they're coming with under gravel filters. Just use those and put them through. And they, they, they work great after literally all those many years of use, they still are intact. And that came with the, the brightest 
clown puke gravel I've ever seen. And yeah, it, as long as there's no no cracks or seams or way fish can get down and get stuck and die, they're gonna work. It's just one of those things where it even works better than a, a longer than a sponge filter because at least the sponge may fall apart in the future. They're just bulletproof. Yeah, and a lot of people don't like to use them for planted tanks, but I've had a lot of success with them for planted tanks as well because nitrates are being developed right there in the root zone of the plants. The only uh, thing I've had is there's some species of like a thicker rooted crypt that actually have broken a couple of undergravel filters of mine. Other than that, I haven't had an issue where it just actually grew the root in, the root spread it apart and cracked it. I call that good growth. That is. <laughs> well, Joel, I, again, we, we appreciate you having on. Is It's a huge topic, and I think one of the big things we didn't get into a lot is the uh, the AKA, the American Killy Association, and how it's uh, really core about that. But I'm actually reaching out to the president of the AKA, so we'll certainly uh, have a future episode on that uh, for sure. But Joel, uh, is there any uh, you know last notes that you'd like to to leave the class and encourage them to get an Achilles? Um, yeah, start start out. You can start out with some some of the best look uh, looking fish are actually good beginners fish. Clown Achilles very attractive. The Aphiosemians striatum. Sometimes you know, I have a friend in Canada that used to breed them and sell them in at Christmas time to the shops because they have like a background of like a, a green sheen with lots of red dots, rows of red dots on the side. And he used to sell them to pet shops um, at this time of year and call them Christmas Kellys. Cause it's a, it's a beautiful red, green and yellow fish. And it's also one of the easiest fish to keep and breed as far as Kelly fish are concerned. And as well as the, the gardener eyes are always attractive and easy to keep and the lyre tails. Um, Yes, you can start out with some very beautiful fish and get some experience and then work your way up to, to some of the more difficult species. Wonderful. And is there any uh, shout outs? I know that you had some, uh, we talked about a little bit of some of the aquarium clubs you, you work with, but any particular shout outs? Uh, of course, the Aquarium Club of Lancaster County is my home general club. Uh, the Mid-Atlantic Killifish Organization, if you're on the East Coast, uh, we serve uh, southern New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and northern Virginia. Um, so if you're in the area, take a look at our Facebook page. Uh, eventually, we'll start meeting again when the pandemic's over. Hopefully, that'll be not too far in the distant future. And... Of course, always like to give a shout out to the, my friends at uh, Greater Pittsburgh Aquarium Society, where I started. And the last shout out goes to the Underground Killifish Poker League that we're all starting tonight. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a pair of Saberfin Killies, you're, you can come and ante up. <laughs> ante up, boys. We'll do a lot of drinking before we start doing that. There might be cash mixed in illegally. We don't know. <laughs> I'm going to get into these because I've always wanted to learn about Killies and just never taken the time. So this is actually pretty good. If Adam's inspired, I'm inspired. I can't wait to try my childhood dream of throwing stuff in and watching stuff grow. (laughs) (laughs) They they used to sell instant fish in, in comic books, you know? 
It's just uh, usually his nothobranchius guntheri. Keep moss in the water, and you had instant fish swimming around. Literally, they used to sell instant fish. I gotta look this up yes. now before we leave. I've never heard of this before. <laughs> it was years ago. I don't know if it's still going on now, but I know I used to see that in my con. You know, usually right next to the sea monkeys. <laughs> um, I'm not. Oh, here it is. Sure enough, uh, see also sea monkeys and ant farm. Uh, history, instant fish was confi- conceived by the Whammo Toy Company in the early 60s. Instant fish were a species yep. of African killifish, and again, the one you mentioned, laid eggs in the mud to start the dry season. Um, Whammo had the idea of selling chunks of mud substitute with eggs inside of it. Once taken home, they put it in a container, water would be added, and the eggs would soon hatch. I need to find one of these old packages online. <laughs> this is now my new mission. Instant fish. Oh, here's the advertisement, Jimmy. I found it. It looks just like the sea monkey craze, dude. Look at that. You see if they still sell them. Oh, I got to save this image to put that on our website. All right. Well, Joel, thanks again for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate you. And for those that are listening, if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, go to aquariumguyspodcast.com. In the bottom of the website, we have uh, information where you can either you know, give, donate a couple bucks, you can uh, support our sponsors, or even better yet, go to our merch store and get uh, some uh, Endler, uh, I mean, Feeder Guppy t-shirts. Or maybe maybe they can send us some killifish eggs. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, there. So send it to uh, our non-existent P.O. box. That's right. In the spring when it warms up. In the spring. Oh, the, b- last question. Uh, how concerned do we need to be on Killy eggs uh, freezing in the mail? You already answered. Uh, very concerned. If it's cold enough for water to freeze, the eggs will freeze. Yep. I mean, is there any species that can survive potentially through freezing? Um, not that I'm aware of. Oh, that was what I was trying to get at, but never mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He thought maybe there's like an abominable snowman, hey, killifish or something. That we... he, he talked about the saber species. Now, I just want the saber tooth. They were been frozen for years. They were. Next, <laughs> next to the woolly mammoth. <laughs> Never mind. Right, before, before we leave, um, I would just like to say that the American Killifish Association is planning to have their convention this year. Um, I think it's in St. Louis. So keep an eye out on their website for that. Um, speakers have been announced and everything. It's going to be in June. I don't know the exact dates off the top of my head, but, uh, hopefully the pandemic will clear up enough by then that the, uh, AKA will have their convention again this year. And that's the best place to get, uh, killifish. If you want to get interested in that. And, uh, where will the poker table be in the back left corner? In his room. Probably in a hospitality room. In his room. <laughs> All right. Next well, to the bucket of beer. <laughs> so is it a, is it a, a all weekend event, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or is it a weekend? It is all weekend. Um, typically, typically the festivities will, will kick off somewhere around six o'clock in the evening on Friday. Um, Saturday morning is is probably the uh, most um, anticipated event, the fish room sale. That's where. Uh, the breeders bring in the fish that they have to sell. They put their own price on it, and they let the people go in and, and buy the killifish off the table. You know, the sooner you register for the convention, the 
lower your number is and the sooner you get into the fish sale room. So, and generally registration opens on uh, New Year's Day. So hopefully it'll be the case again this year. So, I mean, a couple of years ago, I registered right after it, it was uh, when the clock struck midnight in the central time zone. And I went online and I was like number 17. I went on right at midnight and I was number 17 to register. I was not happy. But, <laughs> you know, get a low number, you got to get in there on New Year's, on, uh, right after the clock strikes midnight. And and when that opens up, do, do you run into the room throwing elbows and tripping people? Uh, they, you, they let people in like five at a time. What? The first <laughs> For the first two rounds, first round you're you're allowed to take one one bag. Second round, usually you're allowed to take two bags, and then after that, they usually open it up. It's free for all. I'd be punching people in the throat, (laughs) just like Black Friday (laughs) without COVID, (laughs) like going to Walmart to get that TV for ninety nine dollars. All right, you really want to mess with people, you could just write Saberfin Killifish on a bunch of bags (laughs) (laughs) of peat moss. Just just (laughs) hey, we we, we might have a moneymaker here. Don't tell anybody. $40 a bag. (laughs) Well, again, Joel, thanks so much. And uh, for the rest of you, uh, we will catch you next week on the episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Go f*** yourself, don't you know? (laughs) That's my boy, don't you know.